Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guests are doctors Mary Muriel and Quentin Faulkner, wonderful organists, experts on sacred music and uh, very important Bach scholars and in general very inspiring uh, people who I had privilege to meet while I and Osha were studying uh, during our doctoral program at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So for two and a half years um, Quentin Faulkner was my organ professor and his wife Mary Murrell uh, together with him worked um, at um, St. Mark's on the campus Episcopal Church there in Lincoln and uh, they both led magnificent church music uh, program uh, with of course uh, a pinnacle of it uh, was uh, elegant and beautiful uh, Italian baroque style Jean Bidian's organ uh, and today I'm really excited to talk about um, something that is dear and near to my heart about Bach's organ world because for the fourth time they just um, returned uh, um, from central Germany from these lands where Bach I either worked or visited places that uh, are uh, very important for any lover of Bach's music either organist or otherwise uh, basically these, these lands are Saxony and Thuringia and um, it's fascinating because uh, not so long ago these lands were closed to, to, to the tourists to, to visitors because this, this was, was part of eastern, eastern Germany right and uh, only re- very recently uh, people from the western world had a privilege to to visit there and uh, even to try some of these instruments and touch them and listen to these sounds so let's go to this conversation and uh, and uh, find out all there is to know about how uh, Bach's organs are um, constructed how they feel what's the feeling uh, when the organist plays them and wonderful other things Uh, I cannot even describe what we talked about I I know you will learn a lot because I did too so let's go to the show usually I start uh, these conversations with uh, asking uh, uh, people how they first fell in love with the organ but uh, since we are going to talk about uh, Bach and his historical places and his organs. Let me start this conversation with asking you about how you first fell in love with Bach. That would have to go a very long uh, uh, way back in my memory. I can't remember actually a time that I wasn't fascinated with him and his music. Um, Certainly, uh, that was cemented uh, in, in my mind and, and in my enthusiasm when I went to college and began actually to study the organ formally. I had no formal organ instruction before I went to college. But when I did and I heard uh, Bach's music on the organ, I fell in love and I've been in love with it for the rest of my life. And you, Mary Merrill? 
Well, I know as a piano student, it was always Bach that I wanted to play. And so I can't say when the time began. It just was always there. Of course. I, Bach is beginning and end for every musician, like Alpha and Omega, right? True. <laughs> Wonderful. So, um, before playing organ, Quentin, did you did you did you do something else, or you started very early? Uh, my uh, early keyboard instruction was pretty spotty because uh, my mother had studied. She was actually a piano major in college, a two-year college. But at that point, I was the first of four. Uh, sons, and so she was a very busy woman. So I, um, she would play the piano occasionally, uh, and we would do it, but she had no great love for Bach. So um, I, I really, I cannot tell you when I first uh, encountered his music. Probably in, in, in any meaningful degree, not until I entered college. Uh-huh. And Mary Murrell, um, uh, before playing piano, did you play some other instruments or, or maybe you did some other activities? Uh, how was it in your uh, early memories? I began piano when I was about seven, and it was a class piano situation in the public schools. Um, and I didn't begin private lessons until several years later. Um, I did things such as eurythmics and dance classes and this kind of thing, but no other musical training. Aha. Uh -huh. So I see. So Bach later uh, entered in both of your lives, right? And uh, it remained uh, probably one of the main inspirations ever since, right? No question about it. I've, in, in many ways, it can be said that I've built my career around Bach. I've published material about Bach, um, books and uh, articles and uh, he's been sort of my um, morning star in terms of music exactly well and uh, how about Mary Murrell do you feel that Bach is uh, always on your mind every day or there are some days that you might forget our great great master Oh, I suppose I'd have to be honest and say there are days I don't think about music. <laughs> me too, me too, yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating that uh, we can count our lineage um, um, as um, organ students, uh, organ players maybe, and uh, I've counted uh, through our former teachers that uh, really we can, we can um, uh, trace back our lineage back to back, back to Bach, basically, or even uh, earlier to Sveling, if, if we want. Yeah. So it's really fascinating that we are continuing this tradition, isn't it? Absolutely. And that would be a fascinating study for someone to see, about, see to what degree Bach and his students actually connect with the modern world. I, w I would be willing to uh, venture a, uh, a guess that uh, many, at least German organists, could uh, easily trace their lineage back to Bach through one of his students. So anyway, um, uh, it's, it's so great that today in this 21st century, we can still have some places that uh, have the memory of the Bach, 
of Bach presence, basically uh, places that he lived, he visited, right? He played uh, and uh, places others uh, remember Bach. Uh, and uh, since you were uh, on this tour, so I, I, I'm curious, what's it like to be in these places for you? What do you feel when you go to Germany, to, east, uh, to former uh, eastern, eastern part of Germany, to Thuringia and Saxonia? Oh, the, the the range of emotions is, is hard, um, is really hard to describe. Um, I guess for me, the 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 most the greatest thrill is the fact uh, that when you play some of the organs, in particular uh, Altenburg and Naumburg, when you play those organs, you know that you are playing the keys and. Uh, pulling the stops that J.S. Bach played on, because that is documented. There is no question. Uh, also, Sturmthal, uh, that's equally the case. A smaller organ, but um, also uh, it, its lineage, its connection with Bach is well documented. Yeah, and uh, what about uh, you, Mary Merrill? Do you feel any special feeling when you sit uh, on on the bench of these historical organs? Is it is it uh, exciting? Do you feel some kind of uh, um, uplifting uh, of your spirit uh, as opposed to other instruments that you play? Well, it's it's just a knowledge behind of, of what you're doing. The the fact you realize that the great tradition that is there with those instruments. Um, that being said, they are fantastic instruments and a joy to play. Yeah. Whether or not they're connected with Bach, they are absolutely spectacular inter- instruments. I I would have to say that part of my feeling when I sit at these instruments is also a certain degree of apprehension. Because, of course, as Americans, we are very used to AGO standard organ dimensions and specifications. And most of the organs that we play are either uh, those uh, instruments built with those, according to those guidelines, or they're instruments perhaps from the second half of the 19th century, which are quite similar uh, to modern instruments in various ways. When you play the instruments that go back uh, in into the 18th century and earlier, such as Naumburg and uh, Altenburg and Sturmthal, uh, standard dimensions for uh, organs, uh, uh, and that would, and it's not so much a matter of keys, but certainly of uh, pedals. Uh, the pedal boards have no standard, and so uh, I end up Uh, often memorizing the music and looking at my feet to be sure that I uh, get at least as many pedal notes as possible. If you if you play these instruments over a, a period of weeks or months even, then obviously you get used to those dimensions. But just coming in on a tour and having to sit down and play uh, a piece uh, cold is somewhat... Um, Uh, it causes a certain degree of apprehension. And also you would have to uh, mention the touch of many of these instruments. We here have cultivated a, an, a, a keyboard touch that is very sensitive and counts on the keys uh, to respond to sensitive 
handling, as it were. Many of these instruments uh, are industrial strength, and you just need lots and lots of strength to play them. They're tendinitis waiting to happen. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, that's true. And uh, you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, the the touch, uh, the the different kind of touch, and uh, probably different kind of technique uh, when you play these uh, historical organs. Do you think that um, it's wise to play modern instruments in the way that you would play historical organs as well? Or you should have two separate techniques? Well, I think that most organists are uh, uh, almost required to develop various kinds of touch because it's pretty clear that uh, the kind of touch that's appropriate for Bach uh, in which at least uh, some, there are uh, surely some remnants of earlier fingering, uh, requires a particular kind of touch. And of course, more modern uh, touch, uh, as such as was developed in the second half of the 19th century, that requires substitution and that sort of thing for a perfectly smooth legato is quite another kind of touch. So this is just simply um, uh, something that is required of organists uh, if you want to play music of different, differing periods uh, with the greatest authenticity possible. Was it difficult for you to learn two separate techniques, historical technique uh, with articulation and legato technique for modern organ music, uh, legato technique for 19th century organ music? Basically, w- did you have some some troubles to su- switching back and forth when you were a student? When I was a student, uh, yeah. early uh, fingering practice was not part of the training. Uh, everything was legato. And I only learned later to begin to use, I guess I started by looking for ways to play the articulation I wanted to hear. And only later did I begin to learn about how fingering influences that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, Quentin, um, what influence uh, on your uh, modern and uh, historical uh, keyboard technique uh, uh, had uh, these historical instruments that you that you had the privilege to play, like Gene Bedian style instruments uh, on on uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln campus, uh, even uh, even uh, other instruments that you uh, usually encountered. Um, I, I guess. Uh to answer the first part of your question, I did not, uh, uh, and, and this would hold true for Mary Merrill as well, we did not uh, learn the two techniques at the same time. So that helped. Uh, there was, uh, uh, when uh, we went to college, and actually Mary Merrill studied organ before that, we were taught uh, essentially the 19th century legato technique with substitution. And uh, I would say we were playing the organ for at least uh, 20 years or more uh, using that technique exclusively. Then came the time when uh, people began to do, in particular, uh, under the uh, influence of Harold Fogel, uh, American organists began to interest uh, themselves in uh, earlier techniques, 
that is when both of us then began to practice and to develop the earlier technique, which does not uh, include finger substitution, but rather the idea of rapid shifts of motion of the fingers between uh, various keys. So for us, it was probably, we were able to uh, keep the two techniques uh, separate because we learned them at different times. Mm-hmm. That helps, of course, uh, when when a student starts to learn to play the organ and is uh, uh, introduced to both techniques at the same time, uh, what might happen sometimes is, is this confusion, right? When when to play with the thumb, when to play legato, when to play substitution, when to play with the heels, even uh, when you're playing pedals also. So so I, I kind of uh, uh, might say that, yes, you were lucky that you first mastered the legato technique and then only then you, you mastered the historical technique. Uh, my opinion with that and, and the uh, procedure that I followed was, uh, especially uh, with uh, a pianist who was beginning organ, uh, uh, we would use, and I know George Ritchie was the same, uh, we would use uh, modern technique first. We would develop that and those skills because that is the, the greatest difference between uh, the piano and and the organ. I mean, that's uh, really something very different. Um, pianists, and, and let's face it, almost everyone who studies organ has studied piano before uh, organ study. Uh, you're used to just shifting the fingers with the piano. You've sort of got that down. Uh, obviously, the shift has to happen more quickly on the organ because uh, the sound stops the minute you remove your fingers uh, from the keys. Uh, depressing the keys, but uh, it seems to me that it, it bears more resemblance to the the kind of technique that uh, pianists have, and so it's more important to develop the 19th century legato technique first, and then turn to the other when they have mastered that. That's completely true, uh, Quentin. I completely agree, and uh, and yet I'd like to ask Mary Murrell. Um, since you first mastered legato technique and um, only later this historical touch, right? But you you also played uh, in your early years historical pieces like uh, early, early organ literature like Bach, books, Tehude, right? Yeah. With legato technique, probably, I, I would assume. So Mary Muriel, can you say, uh, was it difficult for you to switch suddenly or not so suddenly from legato to historical technique sort of relearn basically this technique well it means going back and relearning pieces refingering them Uh and um, it's just a matter of relearning them then because uh, the result needs to be so different from the way I played it the first time Yes, yes, I I agree. Um, I remember also some. I was um, I was uh, raised as an organist with more or less articulated technique, 
but um, it it was not as uh, completely historical as I would uh, later learn in in the United States uh, from Pamela uh, Reuter Finstra Quentin and uh, and George. Uh, uh, it it was it wasn't as complete system basically and uh, comprehensive system. So so I. I kind of had to uh, relearn some some pedaling and fingering, but it was a, a little bit uh, easier for me because uh, I think uh, b- because I still articulated articulate most of the of of the early f- pieces that I played. Yes, so wonderful. Well, I have to say that our early training was not totally legato. There was often articulation, though I think it had no um, cerebral part to it. It was just what sounded nice, mm-hmm. cute, or something. But it certainly did not follow any rules or uh, ways that were logical. I, I, I would agree with that, and I would add that that kind of articulation was normally um, designed to bring out... Uh, certain phrases as the performer or the teacher perceived them in the music. But those phrases, within those phrases, it was essentially modern legato. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we have to be, of course, honest and say that even the legato, the legato touch that, for example, Straube used or, or Dupre used, was not complete legato, right? They had some 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 their system of their own to yeah. bring out, as you say, different phrases and um, shades of articulation. But that, of course, uh, dif- was so much different from from what we learned later from these treatises that uh, that uh, Bach's and other uh, composers, contemporaries wrote, right? Yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, the 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 type of articulation that we were taught, I'd have to say, by our earlier teachers, was entirely arbitrary. Uh, there there was no scholarly component to it at all. And in fact, the major teacher with whom we studied really had a uh, disdain for um, learning. Uh, you know. Uh, the study of ancient treatises and this sort of thing, he considered it pretty much a waste of time. And so uh, that's something we didn't, uh, we didn't agree with him on, but it, the, the most diplomatic thing to do was to uh, not say anything and to uh, rather to uh, accept and to uh, profit from what he had to teach us. And of course, when you, when you are sitting on the bench of the modern instrument, sometimes these, these historical techniques don't make any sense, right? Or, or, or I, I should say might not uh, make any sense. Uh, because, for example, you might f- play with, with your heels quite successfully on modern pedal boards or AGO standard. Uh, pedal boards, right? Uh, oh, when you go to to the, these places that Bach worked, like in 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 um, in Thuringia and uh, Saxonia, of course, then you discover something else. Yeah, I w- I would have to say that good common sense would tell uh, anyone 
that Bach was certainly no fool, and we all know that uh, he, his uh, technical ability was legendary, uh, that Bach never substituted a finger uh, is patent foolishness. Uh, obviously, there are situations where it's helpful to do that. Uh, that Bach never used his heels. Um, I think, again, that's ridiculous. It's, it's made more difficult, perhaps, by the kind of shoes that uh, a person would be wearing, because I think at uh, that time, at least from uh, paintings that I've seen, shoes, uh, men's shoes tended to have a, uh, a rather low heel. But it's, it's certainly, as I say, he was not stupid, and he could have certainly figured out that he could substitute a finger on a key and that he could play uh, certain notes with his heels because it was more, e- it was easier to do. The, the difference between that and the modern technique is a matter of consistency, of doing it all the time. Exactly. And of course, the system, right? Uh, the system, we should be quite frank and say that even pieces that uh, were written some two, 200 years before Bach, like uh, Schlick, right? Arnold Schlick uh, wrote some, you know, remember this Ascendo at Patrem Meum for 10, ten voices on the organ um, uh, where the right hand plays three parts the left hand plays three parts, the right foot plays two parts, and the left foot also plays two parts. Basically, basically, you have to play not only with your, with your toe or with your heel, but you have to play both of them at the same time, right? And, uh, that's absolutely true. And, of course, what, what you're dealing with there is uh, this, the same sort of thing that you encounter with Bach. That is spectacularly gifted people who are capable of doing technical feats beyond what any of us uh, mortals seem to be able to do. And if you are uh, so supremely gifted as that, most of these questions really become inconsequential because you simply have the ability, you're almost born with the ability to do those things. And again, there's nothing that we can say about that uh, because they are so long gone. Exactly. So, uh, Mary Murrell, when you go to these um, to these historical places, to Leipzig, to Dresden, right, to Naumburg, to Altenburg, uh, I I think this year you didn't go to Altenburg because the church was under uh, uh, reparation, right? But uh, but uh, but still, you know these places. Uh, so, Mary Muriel, do you do you feel any kind of special, ancient historical smell smell in these historical buildings, um, or is it so modern uh, German way <laughs> with with uh, with uh, medic- medications and sp- special chemicals, uh, very clean and precise, or is it still this historical feeling preserved? Like in Lithuania, for example, when you go to village churches from 19th century and even uh, from the 18th century, uh, where we have this ancient uh, 1776 Adam Gottlob Kasparini organ in Vilnius, Holy Ghost Church. The first thing you you basically feel when entering this ancient 
building is this smell, different kind of smell from, from the concert hall, different kind of smell from, from any other building you encounter. Um, uh, let me leap in here. I think one of the things you have to realize is that with the exception of Sturmtal, which is pretty much original because it's, um, uh, it's out in the country and, um, it, it has, it's been repaired, but it really didn't need to be restored. But all of the other instruments and those churches have been, um, after the fall of the wall, uh, and the subsequent reunification of Germany, they've all been carefully restored. Uh, and so uh, while the material is original, it's all cleaned up. Uh-huh. And so there's no old smell. If anything, there is the slight smell of, of the new kinds of varnishes or whatever uh, uh, had to be uh, used to restore the instrument. I don't, I don't think that, uh, there's any kind of musty smell or, or any of that kind of thing. Uh, this is the sort of thing you do encounter more in Catholic churches because you can have the smell of incense and that sort of thing. But, uh, we visited entirely, um, Lutheran churches. And so, uh, there's, I don't think, at least I don't notice any special kind of smell. Uh-huh. But, but the organs, of course, are uh, more or less original, right? More or less uh, some uh, materials original, right? Uh, yes, uh, yes and no. Uh, they are, well, let's use uh, Naumborg, for example, uh, because that's pretty well documented. The organ uh, was, and, and I cannot tell you the exact date, but I, I, I suspect it was in the uh, earlier part of the uh, 20th century. The organ was uh, turned into, uh, a, a, it had a, an electric key action. Mm-hmm. But that key action was connected to the original trackers. And uh, the other thing about uh, Naumborg is, and this is really important, that uh, I believe it was the uh, uh, musicologist and organ specialist Christart Marenholtz who insisted that that organ be uh, 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 photographed every square inch of that organ inside and out before they did that. Now, that was of enormous help because the uh, organ restorers could go to those photographs and look at it, you know, and actually tell uh, what is happening. But in, in this case, you see a fair amount of what was there originally is uh, replacement. And so uh, it's awful, often very difficult uh, for people like us who really know very little about organ, uh, the structure of the organ, much less a particular organ. It's very difficult for us to say anything about, uh, you know, what, uh, what it feels like, what it, what it was like, because it's just not known. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating. So fascinating that, that, uh, you have these, uh, historical instruments, which were, uh, changed somewhat, uh, or drastically changed uh, somewhat uh, during the uh, passage of times. But then, uh, when the, the awareness of historical techniques uh, was so high in Europe, uh, they, they basically, uh, 
try to restore the organs the right way, right? Uh, uh, trying to recreate uh, the instrument, the organ, the environment in a way that Bach probably would have also liked it. Most of these instruments uh, are restored to a, a specific time period. They chose which version of the organ to use. Uh, the organ in Pompson that we played is a, is a case in point. Uh, they It was modified several times, and in restoring it, they chose a specific year to which they restored that instrument. Um, I think also it is to the eternal um, credit of the um, the government of the reunited Germany of East and West that they recognize just how significant these instruments are to the history of German arts and culture. And so they spared no expense uh, to return them to as close as possible to the state in uh, to their original state when they were built. I can uh, tell you, for example, that at Naumburg, which is unquestionably the Bach organ, if you have to pick a single organ that is the Bach organ, that's the instrument. And uh, Naumburg, I, I heard a, fig- a figure uh, that that instrument, the restoration of that instrument, cost over 4 million euros. Now, that's enormously more than uh, the instrument uh, was built for, uh, the, the amount of money for which the instrument was built. Uh, I remember looking uh, at the, uh, being inside the structure of the instrument at one point, we were looking at something, and I noticed that uh, in one of the subsequent uh, repairs and changes, uh, some organ builder or organ builders had drilled a hole in a piece of, uh, uh, a flat piece of wood, a hole for perhaps uh, electric cables or something like that. And it was perhaps an inch in diameter. And uh, in the restoration, not only had that hole been plugged with a piece of wood that was exactly uh, of the same uh, uh, type and uh, uh, color as the original, as what was around it, but the restorers matched the grains so that the only thing you could see, the grains ran just exactly the same over the plug as uh, elsewhere. I can't imagine where they found a piece of wood where they could do that. The only thing you could see was the slight outline of the circle where the plug had been put in. So the German, the German government spared no expense to restore these uh, really unique monuments to German culture. Fascinating, Quentin, fascinating. And Lithuania, for example, we have some historical organs, of course. And, um, you know, when these restoration projects uh, are underway, the scientists and organ builders come and discuss what kind of states state uh, they should uh, restore the organ, right? Uh, Is it original condition in the 18th century or even uh, a little bit later? Because some some instruments were rebuilt during these uh, centuries, of course. And uh, sometimes it happens that that, uh, the organ builder might have made some uh, illogical choices, uh, maybe 
we might say today mistake because mm-hmm. for example uh, at uh, at uh, this Holy Ghost church in Vilnius where this Gasparini organ was or is um, uh, uh, suddenly or without any apparent reason uh, uh, you know this design where where uh, organ builder plans the design of the instrument and uh, uh, there is in uh, plant in major thirds right uh, sometimes uh, in, on this instrument particular instrument uh, where you have tenor c this uh, this uh, layout of the pipes change and this from from this c upward from tenor c upward uh, these pipes suddenly are in in another location and uh, and it doesn't really make sense musically and even even uh, visually so my long story of course but i w- i was asking you if uh, trying to ask you this questions when when the organ builders restore these instruments do they also restore their apparent mistakes as well i'm not sure i can answer that mm. uh Neither one of us is a specialist in organ building. I will say that uh, all of these important organs, uh, uh, what lies, what uh, what what lay before their restoration, was years of work by committees consisting both of organ builders, not just the builder who was doing it, but organ specialists and musicologists and uh, others who would have uh, any particular kind of knowledge that might be useful in the restoration of the organ. And those decisions were made by uh, that committee so that it was not a um, um, capricious or arbitrary decision by the organ builder uh, or the, the, the firm that undertook the restoration. It ha- everything that was done had to pass through a committee of experts, including uh, organ historians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Mary Muriel, how many organs did you see in Germany this time? I think there were about 10 or 12. 12. I see. So, can you name some of the places you didn't mention before, like Naumburg, of course, and, and Sturmtal, right, and uh, Leipzig and Dresden? Okay. What else? And we visited the the uh, the organ in the Dresdner Hofkirche Court Church. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned we went to Pompson. Yes. And uh, we went since we could not visit Altenburg, uh, we went to uh, Waltershausen, um, and we saw a small instrument in the instrument. Museum in Halle, uh, which is by Maurer. And we also saw the Reichel organ in the Markt Church in Halle. We saw the Radegast organ in Wittenberg. Uh, We were not able to actually hear it this time because, once again, the chapel is undergoing renovations and the organ was actually not accessible at all. Uh, The organist went up and played a few sounds for us, but uh, the floor was missing below the organ, so that there was no bench, and it was a little difficult. To, we were lucky to hear a scale. Um, 
then we went and heard the Zauer organ in the Berliner Dome. And finally, uh, the last day we did, uh, Tangermünde, which is a Scherer organ, uh, that was sort of a replacement for the Schnittger organs, which were too far away to uh, correspond to some of Bach's early experience. And then we, uh, did the Wagner organ in, uh, Brandenburg. Uh, the other one I'd add to that, which is particularly interesting, is the uh, Amalian organ, or Amalia organ, which now resides in a uh, suburb of Berlin called Karlshorst. That organ uh, was built for Princess Anna Amalia, who was the uh, sister of Frederick the Great. And uh, it has to be said that this is a monument of enormous significance because uh, several of Bach's most important uh, students became uh, connected with the court in Berlin. And Anna Amalia uh, was uh, studied the organ under Johann Philipp Kernberger, who was one of Bach's primary uh, organ students. And she had a passion. She developed a passion for the music of J.S. Bach. So she not only had this organ built, uh, for her palace, uh, which has now been lovingly restored, but she also made an enormous collection of Bach manuscripts. And it's, it is thanks to her uh, passion for Bach that the Berlin State Library is now the single, uh, by far, uh, uh, important repository for original manuscripts and prints of J.S. Bach's music. Hmm. That's fascinating because uh, we might also thank Princess An- uh, Amalia also for uh, for another instance, right? Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach wrote uh, wrote his uh, organ sonatas, um, and uh, and um, I don't know if if they were directly connected with with the princess or not. But they they apparently would sound splendidly on on that particular instrument. You're absolutely right. That is correct. Uh huh. So wonderful. You visited so so broad ar- array of of these instruments, starting from the uh, what Scherer. It's, it's like 17th century, right? And then yes, that instrument was 1624. Oh, 16. By far the earliest. Yes, and then you you visited, of course, the Bach era instruments, and also Zauer and Ladegast, who who built the organs in in the nineteenth century, right? So this tour probably left uh, an incredible impression on on the on the uh, people who went uh, together with you, right? I think so. Uh, you, uh, I think. Uh, one might ask why it is that we uh, visit these instruments from such as Wittenberg, which has a, uh, a Ladegast organ from the second half of the 19th century, and then uh, the uh, organ in the Brandon, uh, in the uh, cathedral in Berlin, which is actually uh, dates from 1906. It's a 20th century organ. Why did we visit those organs? Well, the reason is this that the the organ building traits that are most uh, evident in the organs that Bach actually had something to do with, 
that is Naumborg and Altenborg. Those organ traits became the guidelines for instruments that were built for the next century and a half or more. So that when you look at and when you hear and play an instrument like Wittenberg, you can clearly see the connection with the earlier instrument, such as, in particular, Altenborg, with uh, many eight-foot stops, uh, string stops. In the case of, uh, of uh, Naumborg, even a voce humana, a principal celeste stop, which uh, many people would never connect with Bach, but it's there. And we know it was there when Bach played it. Uh, then the, the same thing can be said for the Zauer organ from in the, in the Berlin Cathedral from 1906. It's a monster instrument. I think it has 106 ranks. And of course, it's not tracker action. It's a, a kind of tubular pneumatic action. But again, this same uh, basic design concept of many eight-foot stops and a, and, and a very rich full bass, uh, 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 bass frequencies, uh, those things are absolutely characteristic of the major organs that are connected with J.S. Bach, such as Altenborg and Naumborg. The decisive break with that tradition comes with the advent of the organ reform movement in the first half of the 20th century. That movement ostensibly was a return to earlier instruments, not Bach instruments, more uh, sort of uh, uh, connected with the Schnitkers uh, in the north, which are, of course, not really Bach instruments. But those instruments, the builders of those instruments, uh, thought they knew better and so they often used modern materials which are not very well suited for the instrument. But in particular, they uh, opted for instruments that had relatively little eight and certainly very little 16-foot um, uh, presence in the organ and whose sound was mostly um, uh, characterized by the very large and very... Um, aggressive mixture work. Mm -hmm. Those instruments are absolutely not part of the Bach tradition, whereas the 19th century instruments, such as the Ladegast, and the 20th century instruments, such as the one in Berlin Cathedral, are in fact the direct successors of the Bach organ. That's, that's a great idea, and I didn't think about this this particular uh, I, you know um, trend in organ building this way that uh, Albert Schweitzer who started this this organ reform reform movement or as Germans say Orgelbewegung uh, he thought probably that they because he loved the music of Bach, of course, he loved. He thought that he would uh, encourage organ builders to uh, try to return to the Bach style, right? But in reality, yes. <laughs> what they copied more is is, is more uh, northern German examples with harsh mixtures and uh, very few foundation stops. And it's also fair to say that they went beyond those instruments. If you play those schnitkers and listen to them, they're not as aggressive as, uh, 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 in, in terms of their upper work as the, uh, 
uh, organs of the organ reform movement. And it's not fair to blame Albert Schweitzer for this. Uh, Albert Schweitzer was a pioneer in the revival of box organ works. We all owe him an enormous debt. It is the builders who, under his influence, and really under the influence of the whole first half of the 20th century, which, if, if you look at the music, it's, it's characterized by great clarity and uh, uh, kind of a spiky kind of sound. And uh, that, that's exactly what you encounter in organs of the organ bewegung or organ reform movement. So we can probably safely say that Albert Schweitzer didn't intend uh, that Orgelbewegung would end in this way or continue no, in this way. I, I think that's true. Let's face it, Albert Schweitzer, as, as major a figure as he was for the music of Bach, he spent most of his life in Africa. And, you know, as, as a medical missionary. And so he was really rather cut off, uh, from day to day contact with what was happening in organ building. Yes. So uh, can we compare this, uh, this uh, organ building uh, uh, reform movement to what happened uh, to the Catholic Church? after the Second Vatican Council, right? Because the Second Vatican Council didn't also expect uh, this kind of shift in, in, in musical ideas that shaped the Roman Catholic Church, the future of the musical ideas. They didn't intend, right, uh, for these uh, 60 or more years, but, but they did, right? It was sort of different idea at first, but it developed uh, fairly wildly and freely in a very different direction. I think, I think you're absolutely right. That you have the pioneers, either Albert Schweitzer or the fathers of the Second Vatican Council, and then you have the culture which accepts and, wor and works with those ideas. And of course, that means that the, that the ideas are interpreted through the um, characteristics of the culture. And they get changed as a result of it, you know. Yes. Local bishops probably uh, make a, a great influence on, on ac accepting uh, certain cultural traditions like pop music uh, influence, right, uh, on certain occasions. Uh, and, yeah. And, and then, and then in, it transfers from one country to another uh, because of the influence of the radio and TV, of course. Absolutely. I think uh, rather than the bishops, it, to some degree one could say, I think those kinds of things in the Second Vatican Council were really the result of parish priests. Parish had, priests yeah. And we've, we've watched subsequent uh, popes rein in some of those things. That is, you know, uh, insist that uh, uh, we have gone too far and things need to, uh, uh, things need to be rectified that were never really intended by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. So that, that brings us also to the organ world uh, that, that uh, Albert Schweitzer, sort of the, the founding father of the organ reform movement, started these ideas, but uh, uh, so to say, not bishops, not priests, but organ builders who, who developed this idea of, of making the instrument sound very harsh with very few foundations and strong and high pierced uh, pitched uh, mixtures and mutations is completely probably different 
from from what Albert Schweitzer thought and what uh, contemporaries of Johann Sebastian Bach wrote about the organ building in in, in the early days. Absolutely. Well, uh, another thing that has to be said was that Albert Schweitzer thought that the organs of Gottfried Silbermann were the ideal organs uh, for Bach. And of course, uh, that in itself is a, is a, <laughs> has, uh, presents many problems because Zilbermann did not, uh, uh, build most of his organs in, uh, uh, in any kind of, um, well, certainly not an equal temperament, but he actually, uh, built it, built them in temperaments in which it's really not possible to play in some of the more distant keys in which Bach wrote his organ music. So um, that's a fundamental misconception uh, that Albert Schweitzer shared. Of course, my guess is, and this is only a guess, that by the time Schweitzer encountered those Zilbermann instruments, uh, that they had been re-tuned. Uh, and so that they were in equal temperament or at least in some kind of, of uh, well temperament so that uh, um, they could be played on in all keys. But we know now that those instruments were not in well temperament. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if if uh, the choice of Zilbermann as the Bach organ for Albert Schweitzer uh, was uh, uh, came because of, of, of this, you know, of this... Basically, pro, prolific pro, uh, because he was so prolific and built so many organs, right? And his influence was enormous in, in this part in Saxonia, at least. Uh, so maybe it was so easy to pick the most famous uh, and prolific organ builder, uh, as opposed to maybe other lesser known and and uh, maybe sort of. A builder of stranger organs like uh, Johann Gottfried Trost, for example? Yes. Well, the other thing to realize is that uh, the organs, the Zilbermann organs that uh, Schweitzer knew were not the organs of Gottfried Zilbermann. The organs that he was most familiar with uh, were the organs of... Um, uh, uh, Gottfried Zilbermann's younger brother, Andreas, who did his apprenticeship under his brother and then subsequently moved to Alsace, mm-hmm. I think Strasbourg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was the region uh, where uh, Schweitzer was active. And so it was those organs that Schweitzer knew rather than, and, and was really familiar with, rather than uh, the organs in Thuringia and Saxony, which was, of course, the territory where Bach was. It's not that Bach, uh, that Schweitzer didn't know about those organs, but in his day-to-day encounter with the organs, they were the organs of Johann Andreas Silbermann and not of Gottfried Silbermann. Mm-hmm. And if it's fascinating because Andreas Silbermann had a strong influence probably on the French uh, organ culture as well, or connection at least. Yes, that's uh, unquestionably true, and he certainly did influence it. Uh-huh. So, Mary Murrell, um, uh, on your organ, Bach uh, Organ World Tour, um, did people have a possibility to touch and play these, some of these instruments? The way, <clears throat> the way we usually conduct the tour 
is to go to an instrument and either the local organist will play something for us so we all get to hear the instrument, um, preferably from the nave downstairs rather than from the organ loft because uh, the organ loft is usually the worst place to hear the instrument. Uh, if someone is not available, then either Quentin or I would play something, a few short things so that they could hear the various sounds. Then everyone who wished to play had opportunity to play. Mm-hmm. Then we encouraged them once they had played. Uh, well, some of them uh, stay. Uh, we had several people, st- and we often stayed upstairs because it, it's helpful to uh, pull the stops for the organist. Uh, because, of course, they're not at all familiar with the instrument. But we encouraged everybody to sit downstairs uh, as much as possible at a distance because that's the way you really can hear the organ. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's that's fascinating to to hear the organ f- from from the the point of view of the listener, right? Not only from the point of view of the organist, but also from downstairs, and that's probably a completely different perspective. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely right. The organ, uh, right next to the organ, what you're in, you inevitably hear is the closest division, which is usually something like a Brustwerk. Uh, you know, which is down closer to the organist. And of course, the Brustwerk tends to be the most, uh, aggressive, uh, the, the, it's the softest division, but it tends to have the least weight and gravity. Uh, much, much, uh, there's much more weight, much more gravity in the grand organ, the pedal, so that you hear an entirely distorted, uh, sound, uh, of the organ when you sit at the uh, organ, uh, plate playing desk. Yes, that's completely true, of course. And Mary Muriel, uh, what kind of people usually go on these tours? Are they all organists uh, or, or just music lovers and mu- lovers of Bach particular instruments? There is a, an assortment. We had professors with us. We had people who uh, played lots of concerts. We have people who just love Bach, who barely play. We had um, people who traveled with organists who were not organists at all. So there, there's room for everybody. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, organists uh, touch the or- organ and the instruments these uh, themselves, right? They try to play them. Or non-organists try to enjoy the music uh, from downstairs, probably. That, and often they were thrilled to come up and uh, run the cameras to take... Um, some pictures that would attest to the fact that they had actually played on these instruments. Oh, yes. And then later share these pictures with their friends and family, of course. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and then when, when you, when you play these instruments, uh, these old instruments that Bach played or, or other romantic masters played, uh, for example, um, do do local organists, modern organists of these places also play recitals there for you, for your tour specifically? Sometimes. Uh, for instance, in the Ber- Berliner Dome, we met with the um, the organist, Andreas Seeling, and he was kind enough, first of all, to play us a recital. It was before the church was open, so uh, we had wonderful access to hear it. Uh, we all sat downstairs, and he played us about a half-hour program, 
And then we all went upstairs and he showed us various aspects of the instrument, demonstrated the Rollschwelle, which is something that interests all American organists because we see them so seldom. Uh, and then what we had not expected was that he actually gave a chance for people to play it. And this was the first time that's happened. We've been there, but it was a high experience. Uh, that's a perfect, uh, the Berliner Dome, the cathedral is a perfect example of the challenges uh, that uh, such, uh, an or these organs all present for those of us who go on the tour, because uh, I mentioned the, the whole business of dimensions and how they're different. In the case of the Berliner Dome, we have an instrument with 106 stops and uh, trying to make sense of an enormous console like that with five manuals and all of these different kinds of uh, uh, playing aids. Um, and they have some a set of free combination kind of things, but you, each stop has three switches, whether or not you want to set it on uh, the various combinations. So there are an immense amount of extra things on the console. Technical. And then there's the, the Rollschweller, which is um, analogous to the crescendo pedal on American organs, but the Rollschweller is is a uh, just a, a revolving drum that the organist kicks with his foot, either in, in uh, away or uh, back. It, it just revolves. Those uh, kinds of devices require immense uh, an immense amount of practice to really be able to use skillfully. So in that case, we suggested that everyone either sit downstairs or uh, go up uh, stairs and actually watch him perform the instrument uh, at the instrument. Uh, playing the organ was of, uh, I think, uh, would not have uh, brought any of the tour participants much enlightenment in terms of, of uh, getting an impression of the organ. Wonderful, wonderful, Quentin. And I think uh, uh, we have to mention that on this Zauer organ that you you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, uh, Max Reger's music sounds particularly well, right? That's that. Uh, that is uh, the organ in the Berlin Cathedral is the Reger organ par excellence. Yeah, or uh, Siegfried Karg Ehlert probably also. Exactly. Yeah, these these early twenty twentieth century composers who who wrote music very chromatic music, very dramatic music. Sometimes people say hysterical music, right? But uh, yeah. but nobody can really uh, appreciate this music uh, on a, on on that uh, on the most extent without even touching or seeing the the Zauer instrument. It's only fair to say on their behalf, though, that those uh, composers, those musicians, had an enormous reverence for the music of J.S. Bach. And uh, they wrote pieces on B.A.C.H. in homage, and uh, they really revered the man and his music. Yes, and uh, in in one way or another, these instruments uh, also serve uh, as an example of historical tradition of twenty uh, beginning of twentieth century. How organists play Bach 
legato, right? In these places, yes. they still played. Uh, Straube played there probably, and others play played uh, on 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 these uh, Zauer and tubular pneumatic organs. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's music. So I think even in 21st century, it's kind of very curious to see and hear how our beloved Bach music might have sounded at the beginning of the 20th century, isn't it? There are actually editions of Bach's music uh, done at this time uh, with instructions on how to play them, changing registrations with the use of the Rollschweller and so forth and so on. And uh, organists, some organists in Europe have actually begun to include these pieces on their programs, especially if the organ is appropriate. Uh, because uh, they are, although they may not be historically correct, they are, they turn out to be wonderful pieces of music because it's a collaboration then of Bach and the later composers such as Karl Ehlert or uh, Max Reger. That's wonderful, Quentin. And uh, uh, tell, tell me, um, how many times have you already led this tour? Was it for the fourth uh, time? This was the fourth time that we led this tour. Uh, we led one as part of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln Organ Conference, which was different in concept, but it went to many of the same instruments. And so um, it's the fifth time we've toured many of these instruments, but Bach, Bach's Organ World Tour has happened four times. Mm-hmm. And who organizes this tour if, if people are interested in, in uh, checking it out? Concept Tours in New York City. Concept Tours, okay. I'll, I'll make sure I'll include the link to them next to this conversation because uh, if are you planning to lead this tour next year too? No, we don't. We've never led it every, uh, every year. It's been every other year. Every and in fact, this one has been uh, for reasons that we didn't want to conflict with the uh, National Convention of the American Guild of Organists. Uh, it, it, it was three years um, that, that since we've uh, led the last tour. Uh, pl- plans are now underway. We're talking with the head of concept tours. He's interested in developing something that may uh, combine the dual emphasis of uh, the Bach and Bach's organ world with the fact that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the uh, Lutheran Reformation. And so uh, that's, we're just talking about that now. There are no definite plans. It's amazing how your musical experience and your musical adventures uh, might continue in the future, right? From Bach to the Lutheran world, you have so broad, uh, comprehensive knowledge about all things musical and Bach and uh, probably uh, sacred music as well. So I'm pretty sure that uh, the people who will go on this tour, wherever it will go, or whatever the topic will be, I'm sure they will be so delighted. Well, you can never learn enough about Bach. You can always learn more. Yeah. So, Quentin and Mary Merrill, I'm I'm so grateful for you that that you agreed to have this conversation. It it was indeed very inspirational, inspirational for me, and I hope for for many of our listeners around the globe now, uh, listening to us um, online, and um, and some of them will definitely want to go there uh, as part of of your tours, of course, and uh, not necessarily. All, 
when you lead, but just to 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 see what's what's there maybe on their own to 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 travel to Naumburg to Sturmtam maybe even Altenburg's church will be open the next time how you think possible uh, that that's of course a difficult thing that's one of the benefits of going on a tour because all of those arrangements are made in advance and uh, it I, I think anybody can understand that. Uh, the administrations of these churches cannot cope with huge numbers of people coming in and asking if they can uh, play the organ and so forth and so on. So that uh, the tour uh, offers the particular advantage of all of that being uh, arranged. arranged in advance. Mm-hmm. I definitely, I agree, hundred percent. Because, because, um, just like in Paris, of course, all these famous uh, French organs and organists and improvisers and composers work there and still are active in these churches, in grand cathedral, right, and and uh, in basilicas, and uh, people all over the from all over the world want to come there and listen to these recitals and even come to the organ organ balcony to sit and uh, make pictures and videos of these virtuosos right and it's extremely difficult to get there but 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 sometimes they are lucky and, and some sometimes it's possible to get uh, even to touch uh, to touch these uh, significant instruments themselves it's a great privilege Yeah. So once again, uh, thank you, Quentin and Merimurl, for the work you do for the organ world uh, uh, across the board, right? Not only from the U.S., but people from the uh, Asia probably come to these tours, tours, right? From other European countries go to these tours. So it's it's mostly. uh, I think it's. We've had Canadians, but uh, it's mostly Americans because he does he only does advertising uh, within the United States and Canada. So, uh-huh, I see. So uh, English speaking, of course, tours, tour guides like you and and Mermero, uh, make it so easy and simple to communicate. And you probably have local guides that speak uh, German too. Well, there we do occasionally have, but uh, there are two. Yeah. Director. Yes, the tour director travels with us. Actually, it's a man and wife, and and uh, the man is German. Uh, he he lives in Canada, but he is a German by birth, and his wife speaks fluent German. So uh, we're well taken care of. Great. So when you come back uh, to the United States after this tour, uh, when you came back, basically, um, do you have uh, like uh, a strong uh, church uh, church um, responsibilities that you play at uh, St. James? Yes, <laughs> there's that. But I think the most alarming thing was that When we returned home, between uh, what was in junk mail and what was in our inbox, we had 550 email messages. Wow. So that, was, that was one of the things that took several days. Uh, and then, of course, overcoming jet lag. But we're basically back in uh, normalcy at this point. Excellent. So I wish you, Quentin and Murmurl, um, uh, wonderful musical adventures in the future and lots and lots of uh, organ of J.S. Bach and beautiful playing and beautiful instruments uh, that they continue to influence and inspire you and through you, other people around you.
Thank you very much, Vidas. And please greet Oshra from us. We're delighted to have talked with you, and we hope we get another chance. Excellent. Uh, we, we'll, we'll keep in touch. I'll make sure we, we, we have a conversation about sacred music because we have to mention that uh, both you and Merle Merle are long-time church musicians, right? Probably you, you started playing when you were probably students, right? And uh, still continue to this day. So if, if nothing else, uh, um, you are uh, probably uh, not only Bach experts, but also great, great experts of uh, sacred music and all things that connect with the sacred music also. Thank you very much for this. Okay, so see you uh, in, in, in another conversation. Wonderful. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.